Hello, I'm Ash and this is Flicks and Scoops where I'm smooshing together my two passions, films and ice cream. Every week I ask a guest on to choose a film, I concoct an ice cream inspired by the film and then we eat the ice cream and discuss the film. This week is the turn of crazy bastard, Mr. Basty Knight. I was able to drag him away from the crazy bastard kitchen in Norcone long enough to get together, have a few laughs about Die Hard. Not sure this film requires a spoiler warning, but here's one anyway. If you haven't seen Die Hard, then I think it'd be a good idea to check it out before enjoying this episode. Am I right? Otherwise, slip your shoes off and make fists with your toes as we settle in for Flicks and Scoops, episode 12. Now it's time for ice cream. And you can get it right here. Alright, Flicks and Scoops, joined today by a head chef, a dog owner, a co-proprietor, a YouTube celebrity, a podcast special guester, a GCSE haver, a basic Spanish speaker, an ice cream eater, and a film watcher, all rolled into one. Please welcome Basti Knight. Woo! Hey! <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. May I say, you've welcomed me and my dog into your home, immediately offered my dog a bowl of water. I found a bottle of vodka in your kitchen and you've given me a generous amount of that. Thank you so much. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> <laughs> it's mental. He's like Pat Sharp. <laughs> Good to have you here. Uh, it's very cool for me because it's the first actual cook, chef, food preparer uh, that I've had on the show. So I'm very interested to get feedback on my ice cream from somebody who doesn't feel obliged to tell me that it's that it's nice. Oh, I will be very honest. So just for everyone to know, uh, Basti chose Die Hard as his film of choice. So I made a Lebkuchen and a Koshi ice cream. Uh, I had a number of different flavours picked out, but I went with this to keep it a bit more seasonal because this is going to come out around Christmas. So we'll be getting into the Christmas film element of Die Hard later. Uh, but for now, the Lebkuchen is a German Christmas treat, almost like gingerbread. Uh, so I went with that for the Christmas aspect, plus the fact the baddies are German. Aren't they all? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, I'm actually half German and I grew up eating this Lebkuchen, not in ice cream form, but uh, that's what it, people are doing these days. Shoving it all in ice creams. I'm looking forward to it. So you're half German, half... Half Mancunian. Proper man, kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I prefer, I don't like saying I'm English. Do you like, do you call yourself English? Rarely. It's... It's embarrassing. Isn't Only it? I'm from damp pub. Yeah, bowels. I think the north of England has its own identity. I uh, would prefer to say I was British, uh, but I'd never say I was English. Yeah, I think being here for as long as I have, I fancy myself more as a European. Now, do you feel yes. the same? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Cool. So the the leb cushion you've you've had before uh, and a koshi then, is basically a Japanese version of Rice Krispie Squares. Um, because Are you? Oh, that, that's what I thought you said, coffee. A koshi is called. So it's puffed rice melted together with butter and stuff. Am I, am I going for it? Yeah, please, help yourself. And yeah, a koshi obviously for the, uh, the Nakatomi Corporation link-up and to add a bit of texture to the ice cream. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, that was brilliant. Have you tried making your own ice cream before? Yes, we, we have a Mickey Mouse uh, or Disney ice cream maker in the shop. And uh, when we do a, a Burns night uh, for the Scottish poets, I would make an, an iron brew sorbet. Nice. Um, they loved it, you know. Who doesn't? Mm. <laughs> well, nothing as good as this. That cool. is fucking great, man. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that you've showered me with your honesty. He, actually, I've never met Ash before, and he sent me a message saying, bring a Tupperware and you can take the rest of the ice cream home. I thought, I mean, what? I thought it was lovely. <laughs> but he did not know I was medically obese and excessive ice cream consumption could kill me. Wow. You died him with death. <laughs> Every day, baby. I appreciate the risk you've taken. What flavour do you think you would have chosen had you have made an ice cream? Actually, you know what? Uh, there isn't. Uh, the, the policeman likes to eat uh, Twinkies. He does indeed. So you could just like mash up some Twinkies and put it in some like vanilla ice cream. What else is eaten in there? You could put, you know what? You could just put like a bit of, bit of scent of tobacco. Hmm. Um, I know that Thomas Keller, very famous Michelin star chef, he, for Anthony Bourdain, he made a Marlborough red infused uh, sort of uh, sorbet or some bullshit. Basically, you would just, you would soak the milk that you use for the ice cream or the cream, you soak it in, in something, because milk takes on flavor very well. You know, lots of people who've left a bottle of milk open in their fridge alongside some stinky cheese will notice that the milk through the air could take on that flavour. So you could actually infuse, uh, you could stick a fag, basically, in some cream, <laughs> leave it, you know, heat it up gently. It would take on the flavour of tobacco. So I'd say tobacco and Twinkie. Tobacco and Twinkie. That's the, cigarettes that's the are a big time. theme, you know, he runs out of cigarettes. Yeah, he does, picks them up, smokes them a lot. Yeah, nice. Um, okay, well, first off the bat, I went, did a bit of digging, did a deep dive into... The man that is Basti. Did you? Yeah, and I wanted to ask where the name Cheese Pie came from. Oh, one of the bigger boys at school uh, said, you've got a head like a cheese pie, your <laughs> name is now Cheese Pie. And I had no choice. You know, that be. was the sort of way it worked at high school. The big boys, I guess it was like an oligopoly. They, like a few, three or four big boys controlling the whole infrastructure. Uh, controlling the whole market, who gets picked on, who is called what, who gets left alone, stuff like that. So Cheese Pie is in reference to a, a cooking channel that Basti has on YouTube for which he makes some hilariously narrated yet very useful uh, cooking videos. You've been videos. watching them, yeah. Do you know what? One of the most useful tips I've ever had in cooking was to put milk in a bolognese which I've gone my whole 32 years in life, never done. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I saw it the other day. The other thing is, did you see where you keep the your Parmesan rinds and you put that, you keep them in the freezer. Once you've finished Parmesan, you've got those rinds. They're completely edible, but they're, you know, they're two years old, so they're rock hard. Uh, if you put those in your freezer and the next time you make a bolognese, you put that in, it's like a Parmesan tea bag and it will infuse the, the ragu with some incredible umami flavour. Great tips. I love it. <laughs> you, you were looking at my tits? I was. <laughs> oh, tips. Is that tips? <laughs> Very cheekily. Um, uh, so uh, Bass is the, the head chef, the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho, and 
more phrases to describe the man at the top uh, of the Crazy Bastard Sauce Kitchen in Norcone, which is a sauce company and shop by weekday. Um, by weekend, it lets its hair down and becomes a restaurant. Do you um, just want to give us a little taste, a little nibble of what you've got going on there? Mm. So we, when before the whole corona thing, we would have different pop-ups every weekend, a different events, Venezuelan food, Peruvian food, uh, Mexican tacos, British Indian curry. I could go on. And, you know, unfortunately, now with restrictions and stuff, we're only allowed to do takeaway food. We're currently doing some of the most innovative burgers you will find in Nocturne. No beef on the menu. We have vegan beef. We have vegan chicken. We have homemade saitan. And we have a chicken burger for the meat eaters and um, cauliflower wings. We take the cauliflower, we turn it into a crispy, delicious chicken wing-like meal, but 100% plant-based, and it covered in a crazy bastard sauce, which is combined with uh, molasses, and they're just wonderful. They really are wonderful. I have to agree. I'm a frequenter. Have, have you had the cali wings? I'm a frequenter, a patron <laughs> of the oh, restaurant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't get good fish and chips in Berlin, man. Except for some weekends at Crazy Bastard Sauce. <laughs> do you get it delivered? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite often. But do yeah. you not find uh, the batter's all limp and it's not crispy? It's not as ideal as if you're eating it in the restaurant, yeah. Yeah. But um, you've still you've got still... to get your fish and chip fix, right? Yeah, wow, thank you. Because uh, for me, it, it's very painful to have to put that... You, you go to all these efforts to make the fish and the, the, the chips nice and crispy and, and then you put it in that box... You close the lid, and it and you you know that in in thirty seconds time, it's already beginning to deteriorate. What's going to happen when it's in some poor lad's leaferando rucksack for fifteen minutes? You know. Yeah. It it, it it's but it, people seem to like it, and I'm very happy. Has the takeaway been doing pretty well through the whole pandemic? Yes. Uh, it, it's not good for morale, you know. It's nice when you have a restaurant and people come in, you get to see people enjoying themselves. Also, front of house get to, you know, it's nice for them to to have a, a room full of people and, and to ultimately serving food is, is a way of making other people happy. It's one of the, the biggest pleasures you can give to someone other than like, you know, an orgasm, you know, <laughs> like a really delicious meal is it's up there. And when you can't see uh, your customers enjoying your food, it, it it is tough, but um, it is what it is, you know. How did you get into chefing in the first place? I just, I was unemployed for a long time and I, I just started watching cookery videos and then I would, I would just obsessively cook at home for, and just try all these different things and I was obsessed with learning every every different type of food. Before I could cook, I wondered, you'd, you'd get Chinese and you think, how do they make this? Like, well, this tastes so exotic and so brilliant. What, what? How are they doing this? And it seems so alien. If you have no idea about food, you you just have no idea how that's made. But then, so I decided I wanted to figure it out. And what, once I understood that, and understood the fundamentals of a of a cuisine that that was previously so alien to me, it then made me think, well, if I know, if I can learn how to do that, and I can learn how to make sushi, I can learn how to make curry. You know, f- food is all food is the same but with different ingredients. You know, I know that sounds silly, but ultimately food cooking is just applying chemistry 
to food, to, to, to ingredients. And if you, if you learn the chemistry and you learn the, the, the basic ingredients, you can then, anything is possible. Learn why and not how. You know, don't, don't just read a recipe and just follow a recipe. Try to learn the, 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 the backbone of a, of, a, of a certain type of food that you're interested. What are the fundamentals? Yeah, to come from a place of passion. It's great rather than just doing it, you know, to get a piece of paper saying, I can do this. Delicious mm. <laughs> ice cream, inspire us. <laughs> Lovely. And what's your managing style like? You were Gordon Ramsay, Delia Smith? Uh, I prefer to think of myself as an all-round entertainer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like a David Brent style, but with a little bit of Marco Pierre White in there. I think Gordon Ramsay's a bit too military style, like break you down and build you back up. I'm not going to do that to someone. Most people that work for me have a lot of experience already, and also some of them have uh, more training than me. I don't have a, I don't haven't, you know, start at the very bottom, uh, chopping onions and working my way up. I w- I just went dived in straight at the top. I just said I'm the chef. You know, chef is French for chief. You know, so you, you just, you, normally, you start as a commie. You're not a chef. You're a cook. I, I actually prefer to call myself a cook because I don't like to say, you know, basically walk around saying, oh, I'm the chief, yeah. you know. Um, but you just got to, you just, you have to be honest. You have to be blunt. There's no time for pleasantries. You know, if you're really busy, you can't just be like, oh, hey, by the way, that's a little bit overcooked. Can you just, you just say that's overcooked. Yeah. Saw it out, dick face, you know. <laughs> and you, I assume that that comes naturally to uh, quite a few people. Marco Pierre White says service is service. And it just means that uh, afterwards, if, if I called you dick face because you did something wrong, uh, afterwards we have a beer together and you don't even think about it. Yeah. You know? Uh, and if you, some people can't handle that, um, they get take it a bit too personally and... It's just because you're really stressed. When you're really, really busy in a kitchen, all you can focus on is you've got all these tickets and all of the orders and you just have to make all the food. So there's just no time for sensitivities or, or and also just, it's a weird feeling because you sometimes say you might get a, a text message or some of someone like, and you just, and they say, oh, why didn't you answer my text? They just don't understand that you're literally in this moment where you cannot, stop to do anything you can't have a piss sometimes you don't piss you don't have a piss and then you don't piss for like nine hours and then you go for a piss and you the end of your cock is stinging <laughs> you know i you're not supposed to hold in your piss for nine hours i've worked in uh, a few uh, bars and restaurants in my time but always front of house because i must yeah. admit that the kitchen looks for me probably too intense i think like, I'm yeah. fine if I'm at home, you know, I've got music on, I'm making my ice cream, blah, blah, blah. But in that, yeah, high-pressured environment, I think I'd crumble pretty quickly. No, but it's it's also, it's, it's I don't believe in happiness. I believe in, in life. Life is full of uh, moments, and you try to, in that moment, try to be happy. And what maybe draws some people to the life of a cook is that in that moment, you can't think about anything else. So... You have this job where for eight eight to ten hours, uh, you 
all, if, you, if you're a successful restaurant, if, you, if you're busy, you're thinking about nothing else, and that's quite nice, you know, and, and you, you do get an adrenaline rush, so it, it does appeal to adrenaline junkies. You know, that's why a lot of drug use and that in, in many kitchens, because mm. it does appeal to some certain types. Uh, I never take drugs or drink during work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Strictly. Uh, <laughs> This is nice. I thought we were just going to talk about Die Hard, but it, it, uh, this is way better, isn't it? <laughs> well, I like to I like to get to know the people before I just start chucking stupid questions at them. I did just have another couple that I want to ask you. The first one was, uh, what's your favourite hot sauce at Crazy Bastard Sauce? Oh, great question. <laughs> well, my favourite is the Blue Label. That's uh, Scotch Bonnet with Caribbean Spices because it's a very complex sauce. It also has like ginger and nutmeg and uh, allspice, of course, because uh, and it has a very complex flavour and it's not too spicy. But uh, I also love the the original tomatillo. And, uh, I mean, it's just a classic. It also has a lovely consistency to it. And the orange label is absolutely brilliant. The mango and ghost pepper is a bit too spicy for me, but if you mix it into your food, it's fantastic. It really is. A, do you like the sauce? I'm a big fan of the tomatillo one. It is a classic. It is very good. The the creator of the sauce is is really everything about the the sauce, the the labeling, the the, the look, and and the flavors. Um, it's he celebrates the chili. You know, the, the bottles of sauce are colorful. Yeah. You know, there's nothing to do with like warning, danger, uh, beware. It's not red and you know, flames or skull and crossbones. Uh, he does have those really hot sauces for people that want them, but he wants people to enjoy the endorphin rush, the pleasure that chili can give you. Yeah, not D- the pain. Can you uh, can you hack the mega hot one? Can I handle it? Or? Yeah. No, I would have. I mean, when we when we make burgers, for example, I mix the the hot sauce with mayonnaise, and and the mayonnaise kind of or anything dairy or creamy mixed with chili will will make it less. Painful on the tongue and stuff. If I had a burger or something, I wouldn't open the burger and just pour a load of the hot sauce on. That would be mm. too much for me. Yeah, same. I like I like spicy stuff, but not to the point where you can't feel your face. Or yeah. And how did you get involved with Crazy Bastard Sauce? With you, were you mates with the co-owner beforehand? We we knew each other, but we're not we're not really close. But I was always keeping an eye on him. You know, he lived in my neighbourhood. I was always like, oh, what's that guy up to? He's, oh, I like this. This guy, this guy's got ambition. He's got drive. I want a piece of that. Right. You know, because so many people come to Berlin with dreams and aspirations, but they just end up, you know, there's, there's a bit too much party life here. You can do that. But at some point, as you get older, you've got to say, well, what do I actually want to do? And I saw this guy, I knew this guy, and I was like, this guy is... He's onto something here. Mm. I latched onto him like a leech, you know. And uh, uh, we've been working together now for four years. Um, I'm I'm utterly useless business wise, you know, the admin side. Uh, but I've got a you know quite good at making nice food, and I think that we work well in that sense. Well, it seems to be working out fairly well because you're opening this uh, crazy bastard kitchen now, right? Yes, it's just. It's all getting too big. We would fit. We had two businesses in one 
place and Johnny would make the sauce during the week and then we would open the pop-up restaurant at the weekend and so it's just getting a bit too much and we were very lucky to be able to get the property next door and so we won't lose we won't have to get new customers you know if we move to a different part of berlin you have to kind of start all over again so we're really lucky we're just get, getting in the place directly next door it's gonna be great come on down kids last one just before we get into it what's your favorite kitchen utensil Ooh, <laughs> tasty <laughs> i ask because my flatmate always takes the piss because i have a I have a favourite utensil. It's it's very, it's got a multitude of uses. You can a multitasker. Uh, I like it. Yeah, right. You can mix with it. You can use it as like a fish slice. You can oh yeah, stir oh, yeah. all sorts of stuff. I don't know what you call it. It's like a wooden spatula kind of thing, but not deep enough that it's a spoon. Okay, but it, does it have um, holes in it so you can use it no. as a whisk? No, beak, it's just beak, a wooden spoon. Maybe. Why is it? <laughs> I like it. I think I think essentially it's just a wooden spoon, but like a very particular one. I don't know. It's like it's more like a the end is like a spatula, I guess. It thins out. Oh, nice. Yeah, exactly. So you can use it. Yeah, you can stir, and then you can like pick up your your bit of card and like a spatula. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Ooh, I'm gonna go with the classic bread knife the bread knife because one thing about great about bread knives is they they stay sharp for ages because most of the blade never touches the chopping board food doesn't make your knife go blunt it, it's the board the chop and especially if you have a plastic mm. chopping board in restaurants you have to have plastic you can't use a wooden chopping board whereas a bread knife if you think about the serrated edges most of that that blade doesn't actually touch the board, so they stay sharp for ages. And you could it's really good for like cutting limes and lemons as well. And it's basically got a saw in your kitchen, you know. <laughs> now I have a machine gun. Oh, oh, oh! A security guard we missed. Usually tired of this, we growing fat on a pension. No, no, no. This is something else. Now comes the the pre-approved questions. Unfortunately, now the fun stops. So, <laughs> are you a flicker or a scooper? What what does that mean? It's it's ice cream or what? <laughs> it sounds very sexual. You're, you're, you're not the first person that's mentioned that. Uh, so, are you a flicker or a scooper? In essence, is do you prefer watching films or eating ice cream? Films, yeah. What is it that you get from films that you don't get from ice cream? <laughs> is this a real question? I don't what's well, ice creams make me feel guilty and like ice cream just makes me feel shame. Whereas I guess in a film you can forget about your physical appearance and who you are. You you get you get lost into someone else's life. I see. So definitely, Phil. <laughs> uh, and when you do eat ice cream, do you prefer it in a cup or a cone? I think cone, because you can eat the cone. And sometimes it costs the same, doesn't it? I've always found that odd. Yeah, so so why? It's like, as an northerner, you're thinking, well, I'll take the bloody cone. <laughs> Can't eat the bloody cup, like. Give it cone-like. Free cone. <laughs> when you do go to... um. To an ice cream shop, 
you've got one scoop. What's uh, what's your flavour of choice? Um, it has to be some kind of berry, like berry, like <laughs> ice cream from berry. It's a tough one because I would go for two scoops and try some kind of combination, like a tropical fruit combined with a more homely fruit, such as the raspberry, the blackcurrant, the heidelberry, the blueberry. Uh, but if I just have to have one scoop, I think I would go blueberry. Blueberry? Yeah. As a sorbet or as an ice cream? Ooh. <laughs> you know what? Let's get rid of the animal products. Make it a sorbet. Let's just be good to everybody, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have to put milk in everything. Is ice cream usually your snack of choice at the cinema? No, absolutely not. What is? Sweet popcorn, although in Germany you can get, if you ask nicely and if the person seems to be pleasant, not too busy, you can ask for half and half, salty and sweet. And if they're really good, they'll, you know, some of them, if they're, they're wankers, they just put, fill it half with salt and then fill it, top it up with sweet. But if they're fucking into it, they'll try and, you know, combine it, you know? Yeah. So you got like a pick and mix. And do you go to the cinema often? Or no, never. Do you watch a lot of films? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I love, the thing about films now is um, I like action films and now they're all computer games. They, they're just made by, on computers. There's very few films where they don't have any CGI or films now are, they're just shit. They're just shit. Are they shit? It could be just, it's also when you get older, you don't listen to new music either. I, if I'm on Netflix, I'll, you'll see like some new film with Tom Hanks or some bullshit. And then you see previously watched and it's like Lethal Weapon 2, Diplomatic Immunity. <laughs> And you just say, oh, fuck it, I'll just watch that again. Watch that woman on a, sw on a diving board that blows up and flick flips her into the water. That's brilliant. Yeah, I can't be doing with um, Marvel films and stuff these days. I mean, yeah. obviously, people making good films still, of course, but in the big box offices, it's all, it's all trash, <coughs> really. And why did you choose Die Hard? It's the greatest film of all time. You, it is, isn't it? I think it's one of the greatest films oh, of yeah, all time. Oh, yeah, of course. It's, you know, there's other brilliant films. Um, I also think, I think it's, it's almost a, a completely perfect action film. There's very few bits that are unbelievable or silly. I, th I think there are only three mistakes in the entire film. It's, it's absolutely perfect, almost, which, I mean, that's very difficult to achieve perfection. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually watched some videos. Of, I'm I'm not very good at expressing myself critically about you know film or book or something. So I tried to watch some videos of, of other people talk about films, about and they point out about Die Hard and they pointed out loads of really like brilliant stuff on top of all the other brilliant stuff that I remember. Yeah. You know the the opening uh, when he's driving the limo to to the building and the, there's this beautiful LA sunset. And, and 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 you know the camera pans up the tower and it's just it's just beautiful. It's a beautifully shot film. And then of course there's just 
like the characters, uh, the the baddie Alan Rickman and the and the goodie Bruce Willis, and you know that Bruce Willis is. I, I didn't realize this, but he, he was actually third choice. They wanted originally um, bloody Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, and they wanted it to be this like one guy takes on all these terrorists. He wasn't available then. They were like, like Sylvester Stallone, he wasn't available, and then. Bruce Willis was actually known as a, a comedic actor, uh, but it was actually just uh, one of those fortunate like occurrences because it was brilliant. Like he's got a receding hairline and he's a New York cop, so he has some you know he knows how to use a gun, but he's not a he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not like ex marine or something. He cannot take on like nine terrorists. You know, in the first sort of twenty minutes, he's actually trying to get help. That's all he's doing. He's not thinking, oh, I'm just going to kill all these people. Yeah. He's then forced into that situation. That's what, what's so brilliant about it. Whereas if you watch, say, Steven Seagal in Under Siege, which is also absolutely brilliant, <laughs> he is still an ex-Navy like SEAL, you know, every single medal. Whereas Bruce Willis is, or, or John McClane, isn't. It, it paved the way for that um, everyday hero. Yeah, who's fallible? He can get hurt, and he's not, you know, stacked full of muscles and all this sort yeah. of stuff. And then, yeah, just to pull up on the CGI point, the the gunshot wounds that they do with the squibs, you never see that anymore, and yeah. it looks so much more realistic than yeah. actual CGI. Because no matter how good CGI is, you can always tell that it's yeah, CGI. yeah, and 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 it means that films they they do too much. Whereas back in the 80s and 90s, they had a budget. So you also realize that when they blow up a tank or something, they've got to do that once. So you can tell that there's all these explosive specialists, engineers, cameramen, they prepare these scenes because they're spending so much on them and they can probably only film them once. So it's like this celebration of organization and planning and and a collective group of people doing something to, to have this one shot of, of, that looks amazing, getting everything right, and that's beautiful. And if you could do all of that on computers, that's all lost. There's no pressure. There's no like you've got one chance to do this. Obviously, there's still a lot of skill in the computers, but I know what you mean. It's you, you can redo it, retouch it, edit it, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Whereas when it's when you're physically blowing some shit up, it's you got one shot really. The film differs from other 80s films due to the lack of reference to the Vietnam War. However, Empire Magazine wrote that it does reference Vietnam. Which side of the fence do you fall on? Well, the, there's, uh, there's the two FBI agents, Johnson and Johnson, no relation. One of them's black, the other one's white, that's why it's funny. And when they're in the chopper, the, he says, this is like fucking man. And then the other Johnson says, oh, dude, like, dude, I was eight years old or something. Uh, so that is a Nam reference. They wrote that it references Vietnam by showcasing an ill-equipped local taking on highly equipped foreign invaders, but this time America wins. Um, and, oh. And the complex layout of Nakatomi Plaza can be seen as analogous to the concealing jungles of Vietnam. That's who wrote that. It's That's a load of touch. Like wank, <laughs> mate. That's a stretch. <laughs> Whoever wrote that, you're reaching. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I mean, like you said, the the helicopter bit. If if 
And I think you'd have to go at quite a stretch to say it was a comment on Vietnam. It just makes him out to look like a bit of a knob. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, it was probably 11 or something. It's on a... It's shown in the UK every Christmas. It's it's also the one of the best Christmas films of all time. It and so every single Christmas it's on and everyone watches it and everyone's like, yeah, fuck, I, I've, I've forgotten how brilliant it is. You know, I I think I could watch Starred with my mother and she would enjoy it. You know, even though she wouldn't be into all the violence and stuff, she'd still be. Charmed by, you know, the, the quality of the film, Alan Rickman's performance. It's one of the few, there's this test, I think it's called the Bechdel test, no. There, there was a, I can't remember what it's called, but there was an American female cartoonist. It, yeah, you're right. And she, she said, to, to point out how, how, few, how many films lack uh, female representation of, of, of art in general, she said, in order to pass this test, there have to be two women with names that talk about something other than a man. And it just about passes because uh, Holly Gennaro says to her secretary, who does have a name, she refers to her by a name, I can't remember it, says, stop working and go and enjoy the party with everyone else. Now, that's the only line, but it's, it's, it's shocking to think that, that so many films at that time didn't have that, you know? Yeah. If there were women in it, they might not have names, and if they did, they'd be talking about a man. Do you, um, do you think it's a feminist film? Because when I was no, but yeah, but she's she's like yeah, she's she's a strong woman, and she, she you know I guess that that conversation was to show that she's a boss as well. She's telling a, another employee to go and enjoy the Christmas party. She has authority. She she she's it's a great scene because it's to show that she's not just gone to LA and left her husband. She's actually got ambition to. And she's working at this very good company, and she's highly regarded there. So yeah, and I think at that time, it probably weren't that many women in America. You know, uh, yeah, so I think it is. I think yeah. in, in a lot in a lot of films of the time as well. I think uh, female bosses were made out to be cold or yeah. There was something wrong with them because they had yeah. they had ambition and they didn't want to just have kids. Yeah. Now I saw quite a few people arguing its case for a feminist film. I mean, I think they've done well to build a two dimension, you know, more than a one dimensional character with Holly, but there's still points. I mean, there's a there's still a gratuitous boob shot in the in the first twenty minutes when the the two co workers are fooling around in the office. Oh yeah, bit of tips. <laughs> it's still the eighties, don't forget. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and you still manage to get a bra shot of Holly. By the by, the end as well, they still managed to feed that in. Oh, somehow. do yeah, Jesus. There's other things as well, like certain things that peg McLean as a hetero man, like wincing when the guy kisses his cheek and ogling a naked woman on a post on a locker. And I just think there'd be a lot of questionable justification I'd have to go through to call it a feminist film. And um, but you you mentioned that you watch it a lot at Christmas, as do I. What do you think defines a Christmas film? And is Die Hard a Christmas film? It absolutely is. It has loads of Christmas references. It has the the limo driver playing... Is it Run DMC? Yeah. About Christmas. 
Um, you know, he's going there to spend Christmas with his children and with Holly. And, you know, it's kind of unclear. He's probably going to sleep in the spare room. I think there's some purists, I guess, that would argue Christmas films have to focus on joy and love and all, you know, good tidings, what have you. But in a lot of Christmas films, it also amplifies loneliness cynicism, family dysfunction, and which... Redemption as well. There's always a character that uh, it's about, it's often about they've lost faith in something uh, and then, or, you know, Christmas is about belief, believing in the power of miracles and, and happiness and it's a time when people can redeem themselves. Home Alone is a Christmas film but it's just kind of, there's just these two wet bandits in his house. <laughs> I made a bit of But a... he finds, you know, the old man. That's all it's all about, isn't it? The old man is actually just a nice old man. Yeah. And uh, he's got grandkids or something who he, and he hasn't been speaking to his son. That's the redemption. Macaulay Culkin, Kevin, gets that old man to reconnect with his son and his kids. <laughs> It's that's brilliant as well, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that's also another favourite of my Christmas films. But I made a little checklist, which I think it can be held to to account by a Christ-like sacrifice of McLean with the uh, penance and stigmata that he has to go through with cutting his cutting his feet. Uh, Jesus, where have you been reading all this, <laughs> man? <laughs> it features Christmas songs, Holly. The name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Could it take place at any other time? Possibly. But the whole reason he went to LA is because it's Christmas. Any other time of year, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned about the Run DMC Christmas song. And then it's set on Christmas Eve during a Christmas party. Check. Which, Check. My, which might I add, is bonkers. Who has a work Christmas <laughs> party on Christmas Eve? So in Germany, you have what's called Bescherung which is the giving of gifts, and that still takes place on, in the evening on the 24th. And uh, during the day, you go to church traditionally, and the, the woman or the mother of the house traditionally would just make a potato salad served with some frankfurters, because it's meant to be a very humble dish. It's meant to be that, that whoever was cooking didn't have to, to put too much effort in because they should be enjoying that day. So in Germany, the 24th of December is much more important. So when I was growing up, all of my friends were, you know, they'd go to the Christmas party at the local pub, you know, and I'd really want to go. But I, it always felt really bad because my mother would be upset if I if we did the, the gifts and that. And then at like 8 o'clock, I said, oh, can I go to the pub? But I think, it, I mean, you're... Fully UK, UK like <laughs> you, uh, Christmas is all about the twenty fifth, not the twenty fourth in the UK. Yeah, it's it? all about the twenty fifth. We do the same. On so the would 24th. you not go to the pub or on the twenty fourth? Yeah, but I wouldn't have a work Christmas party. That just seems a bit insane. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think I think it, it, it's more if you work if you like that's a big corporation. That's like there's like hundred odd people working there maybe. Whereas, yeah, like work Christmas parties tend to be, I've never worked for a massive company either, so it tends to just be 
you go for an awkward meal somewhere, like on the on the nineteenth of December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you get a bit drunk, and you see another side of Sandra that you didn't know existed, <laughs> and and uh, you know it's just all a bit of a mess. Has the film had an influence on your life at all? Don't trust the Germans. <laughs> no, I'd say more. Stuff like comedy, uh, stuff like Alan Partridge or Seinfeld, um, you know, these are the things that I maybe you know would l- like watch or listen to repeatedly. You know, like when I was younger, I'd go to bed with my Walkman on and just listen to Alan Partridge radio series or something like that. And those things more become like part of your vernacular and the way you think. You know, like coming out with an Alan Partridgeism. In, in in daily life, it, it, that's when you really think, "Fuck!" Like they, these, this 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 art has really affected my life. Really ingrained, thinking, yeah, yeah. Or or Seinfeldisms, you know, the whole, the, you know, the philosophy of Seinfeld. Um, I would say, like, you know, his the, the character's way with, you know, his, his attitude to life and not settling down, not getting married in the show it wasn't, of course, how he really was in real life. But I, I have definitely adopted that, you know. I've got a, I've got a wonderful dog, and I, I live alone, and I'm very happy like that. And the dog's called Larry David. Yes, named him after Larry David. He was called Jerry actually for about two days, and I just didn't like it. When they're that young, you can change their name every two minutes. They're not going to know, you know. <laughs> and it's all. Uh, but then a friend of mine said, "Well, why don't you call him Larry?" And and I thought, yeah, that's perfect. And he's called Little Larry David. He's lovely, isn't Very he? Very cute, Little Larry David. He's yeah. cute. Oh, my God. The LL Cool L is another name I give to. <laughs> Ladies love Cool Larry. The women, they obsess. He's got about 10 birds on the go. <laughs> and they all think that they're, that they're his special little girlfriend, but there's loads of them. They haven't got a clue. Yeah, he's they, they cream themselves. <laughs> Literally. What? What is your favourite scene in Die Hard? Ooh. Oh, my God. You're one of them, aren't you? Oh, please don't kill me. Uh, yeah, Alan Rickman pretends to be... Well uh, pretends to be an American uh, worker who works in the building. And... This is where we see John McClane at his best. He doesn't uh, just assume, you know, doesn't immediately believe him, you know, asks him his name, uh, and he, the guy, Alan Rickman's character, gives him his name, and he looks at the board, it all checks out, but then uh, he offers him a cigarette, and then he, he says, ask him if he, I think he asks him if he knows how to use a gun, and he gives him his gun. He's got a machine gun, but he gives him his handgun, uh, but he he removes the bullets. Good old Bane switch. And then uh, yeah, and then he's like, "Come on, we're going this way." And Alan Rittman, um tries to shoot him. You see, you know, another thing about McTiernan's uh, directing is it's just shot perfectly, you know. And you see Bruce Willis walking, and then you see Alan Rickman in the same shot talking the walkie-talkie in German. You know, found the cunt or whatever, <laughs> and then you see I think Bruce that's a literal translation. Like, ah, you think you've got me, but I got you. And that's a great scene. 
I think what works well about it as well, like you mentioned the way it's shot, is it gives you a really good sense of the space without it getting confusing. Like you know exactly where you are. Yeah. Uh, geographically in the building where the where the baddies are, where he is in relation to them, and it's it's just a really great use of, of that space, I think. Yeah. Um but it's interesting you said that because I think anyone who doesn't say the scene when Ellis goes to try and save the day is a liar. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> Cocaine's poster <Pants>. boy. Booby. <laughs> Bobby is coked off his face. <laughs> it's the most quotable five minutes of the entire film. Yeah, now that is a good scene. Um, oh god, uh, yeah, he's that guy's got to get shot in the face. He he is, you know, corporate America that time of of you know excess, uh, cocaine, expensive suits. He represents that, and he's going. You know, he's going to get killed as soon as you, you, you know, he's. A, it's just obvious. Yeah. I must admit, though, uh, we have a, a WhatsApp group, my mates at home, and any time I go back at Christmas, when it gets to mid-December, I will only respond in Ellis quotes, like, hey, it's Breckensy talk. <laughs> yeah. And and also, you know, he probably just wanted to have a line, you know? He's probably like, because he seems like, oh, this is, this is getting nowhere. It's because he's not allowed to go off to the toilet and... and do a little sneaky line. That's what the the coke addict is thinking. It's like, you know, he's not thinking, oh, we're getting nowhere here. I think I can resolve this situation. He's like, fuck, man, I just want to have another line. So I'm going to go try to talk to this guy. So this can (laughs) all be over (laughs) and I can get back on it. (laughs) Which character do you relate to, if any? And if if nobody, then um, is there anything in the film that particularly resonates with you or reminds you of something in your own life? It's hard to to relate to these characters in this Hollywood environment. Mm. I like Holly. I guess that she she's more focused on her career. I, I'd say right now, I'm I, I my main focus is to just do something. Uh, to pursue uh, a career or to pursue a profession, profession rather than to maybe enjoy my my leisure time. Maybe ten years ago, I was much more a work. Work is something you do to earn money, mm. and but life is about having fun, having relationships, uh, and now maybe uh, I just feel like I'm getting approaching my forties. I want to focus on achieving something. Sure, yeah. I, so Holly, I'll go with Holly. We'll go with Holly. Uh, yeah, I can't really relate to anybody, but what I do absolutely relate to is Hans when he's shouting, she's done Fenster, she's done Fenster, and then he has to revert to English, which is nobody's native language <clears throat> in there. And the amount of times that's happened to me here is yeah. countless. The amount of times that I start a conversation <coughs> in German. Is Hans Gruber the best on-screen villain? Oh, he's great. It, I think they, I think he hadn't been in that many films, or he and they deliberately looked for a sort of Shakespearean actor, and you know, an unknown. So, if you want a really good actor that's not known, you go to, you look to the British market. You know, you look to these thespians, these. Brilliant dramatic actors that are, you know that are working in, in the top theatres of London or whatever that can pull off 
you know, Hamlet, no problem like that. You know, give him, you call Alan Rickman and say, hey, we need Hamlet tomorrow. He'd be like, yeah, easy. Piss all over it. <laughs> so it was a great choice. And, you know, and, he, and he, as a half German, his German isn't perfect. You can hear that he's not German. You can hear his accent's not quite perfect, but that's something that's often overlooked in, in, in Hollywood. They don't really care so much, uh, you know, because I think a, a lot of directors would say, okay, we've got a German villain, you know, like Tarantino would get Christoph Waltz, or, or is that, I think that's his name, the Austrian. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, a good player, you know, we need a German villain, so let's contact Studio Babelsberg in Berlin and say, hey, we're looking for, uh, you know, an, uh, an experienced German actor to play this German villain in a Hollywood film. And, and back then, they didn't do that. They, you know, like, in, like uh, I mean, the most famous one is, uh, was it Dick Van Dyke in uh, Mary Poppins? And he's supposed to be this Cockney, and it's just one of the, the worst Cockney accents of all time. <laughs> yeah. Um, that guy Don Cheadle in Ocean's Eleven he's supposed to be a cockney you know just there's so many black the uh, British actors from the east end of London but instead Hollywood's like no let's get Don Cheadle to do it and he's shit <laughs> he can't do it he's a great actor but he can't play a cockney yeah the, so, so do you think he's German passes oh yeah it's Alan Rickman <laughs> you know Sounds he would have like actually Rickman. like tried to learn German, he would have got a vocal coach, a voice coach, to say, you know, just to correct his pronunciation. And and the thing about German is it's really difficult to sound German if you're not, you know, mm. it really is. I've met very few English speakers that, even if they've lived here for 15 years, you can still hear the American or British accent. Yeah. There's a few that nail it, but it's really difficult. For man money, he's probably the second best on-screen villain only Ooh. beaten by Norman Bates from Psycho oh but um, but he's he's very good Alan Rickman I would agree is he a villain Norman Bates oh all the questions he's 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 mentally ill whereas Alan Rickman is is a thief it's a very good point. He's a he's an intelligent man who's chosen. He's a psychopath. He's chosen. Uh, he's able to just shoot someone in the face, no problem. But he's chosen it for his own gain to to do something. Whereas uh, Norman Bates is like stuffing his dead mother, like taxidermist, you know, style, and then he kills people. Why does he kill people? Because his mother tells him to, isn't it? He's talking to his mother. Mm. And I think she makes him do these things or something, you know. I will be pondering this tonight. So is that is it's a very that, good point you raise? Yeah. Whereas I think a villain is like like Blofeld or Goldfinger. You know, these mm. are like evil genius, uh, Doctor Evil, and you know that's for me that would be a villain. Yeah. Right. Whereas that he would be. A victim. Maybe he's more a victim. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. The abused becomes the abuser, you know. He's had suffered abuse and then gone on to do terrible things. Um, his mother, when she was alive, was probably a horrible mother, always criticising him. Mm. 
you know, for masturbating. <laughs> well, now you've made me question everything. <laughs> What's uh, your favourite fact or piece of trivia about Die Hard? Uh, that, it, that test thing, that it passes that test with the... The Bechdel test. Yeah, so I think that, that because... Uh, even though it, it it also just it drew my attention to that test and just how how it only passes it because of that one line. My piece of trivia was that in the German version when it was released. Oh I like the Stück langsam, yeah. <laughs> the names and backgrounds of the German terrorists were changed into English forms, uh, mostly their British equivalents. So Hans Gruber was Jack Gruber, Carl, Charlie, Heinrich, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Um, the new background depicted them as radical Irish activists, having gone freelance and for profit rather than idealistic. That's interesting. And this was because the uh, German terrorism, specifically by the Rota army fraction, was still considered a sensitive issue by the German government in the 80s. Yeah, now you're being interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that, so it, just took, it just took me an hour. <laughs> that, that's uh, a Partridge reference. It's understandable, isn't it? And also, if you're dubbing, German films are always dubbed, so they can... If you if a German audience can't hear anyone's voice, then why not change all the names? Yeah. You know, if the names are not written anywhere... So you can change, you can change, you can make them Irish, yeah, absolutely, and change their names completely. And uh, I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, Germans have don't, you know, have got enough get reminded enough about some of the darker history. So why make them watch a film where all the bad guys are German? Yeah. You know? um, make them Irish, <laughs> easy. <laughs> They've not been shot on enough over the years. Yeah. There's more to Ireland than this. <laughs> Tired of sitting here waiting to see who gets us killed first, them or your husband. What are you going to do? Hey, babe, I negotiate million-dollar deals for breakfast. I think I can handle this Euro trash. Hey, frickin' to talk, huh? So, Basti, it's that time of the evening. <laughs> Can I ask, are you familiar with the star system by which films are usually rated? Out of five? Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, kick that knowledge in the nuts because at Flicks and Scoops, we rate the film out of five scoops. And oh. <laughs> what I would like you to do is rate the film out of five scoops. So you're going to give Die Hard... Well, as I said before... It's very. It's impossible to achieve a perfection. So, really, you should never give any film five out of five. But it is almost perfect. So it's five. It five is five. Scoops. It is. It's absolutely. I think there are only three mistakes in the entire film. First one when he falls down the lift shaft and he misses that that ventilation thing he's going for. Uh, and then he grabs onto the next one. Mm. Yeah, no, that that's the whole point of John McClane is that he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, and so that w is it's a shame because that's not realistic and it wasn't necessary. Um, and it, for me, every other scene, every other action scene is believable. You know, he's not doing anything superhuman or with. Uh, whereas in that scene, that's the behavior of, you know, a Schwarzenegger. A, a, you know, a Jackie Chan. Eight finger claw yeah, grab, exactly. Yeah. You know, the finger strength to do that. A New York cop 
There's no way any of them have the, the finger strength to do that. You have to be an experienced rock climber or, you know, uh, a Jet Li kind of Shaolin master to have that kind of finger strength. So that's the first mistake. Uh, second mistake is when when he's finally gets through to the police, the fact that they don't believe him. Um, I do have a bit of a problem with that. Like, you know, it's not then it's not the nineteen thirties. Like, he can say his name, his badge number. You know, they can check the flight records. Has John McClane, New York cop, recently flown to LA? All of that stuff, and then be like, okay, we're talking to a policeman here, and he's telling us that terrorists have taken over this building. Then to just you that you confirm it, but instead there's this whole thing of like he's just this nutcase. Yeah. And or, the, or at one point they think that he's doing all of this, you know, that they're speaking to the bad guy, and and that that that's the second mistake. And the third mistake is the one of the two German brothers at the very end suddenly like reveals himself from under this sheet and has a machine gun and is going to kill John McClane and his wife, and it, uh, and and it's like, well, how, how the fuck did he get there? <laughs> How how you know? Did you think he was dead and he was on the a stretcher? The last time we saw him, he was hanging from a bloody yeah, chain. Yeah, and is and they only do that so that the the cop who has this trauma of having shot this child, he gets to he gets to shoot him. You know, so it's like the redemption for him. Redemption is that he killed a kid, and since then he's never used his gun. You know, he he just he patrols the streets and eats Twinkies. And so that that scene is put in to to redeem his character, and and so those are the and to think that those are for me are the only three mistakes in this otherwise flawless film. That's why I guess five scoops because I don't even care about them really. You know those those mistakes don't bother me. It's just it, it's brilliant. It's official five from me also. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bloody pleasure. Um, do you want to plug the Crazy Bastards Kitchen? Where can we find you? What social medias you got, baby? We're on um, Instagram, CBK Kitchen. Crazy Bastard Kitchen. We're, uh, you can follow Crazy Bastard Sauce on there. We're on Razorstrasser in Neukern. We can just find it on Facebook. You can all leave Rondo. All of that. Come down. Have a bit of fun. Thank you. Good night. Good night. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did making it. If you weren't already sick of me name dropping, then click over to flicksandscoops.com to get all my ice cream recipes as well as all previous podcast episodes. Check them out. What else are you going to do in lockdown? The podcast is also available on all the big platforms that are paying questionable taxes and you can find Flicks and Scoops on Instagram and Twitter, so I'd be very grateful if you could spot us a follow on there. Next week, my special guest is the founder of the creative production house, Impolite, and we'll be talking about one of the winners from the Berlinale this year, Favolacci. In the meantime, stay safe, don't be a dick, yippee-ki-yay, mother flickers. Now it's time for ice cream. And you can get it right here. Ice, 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 ice cream.